You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our final panel for the day. Very excited for this one. It is on systemic racism among the police in particular. With that, we're going to jump right into it with our first, you could say, sub-question in particular. First, Dr. Ben Burgess had asked if we could just get a definition that everybody would hopefully agree on with regards to what systemic racism is, and then we'll jump into the rest of the questions as well. The floor is all yours. Thank you so much, gentlemen. (laughs) All right. Uh, So I think when people talk about systemic racism, they usually mean one of two things or a combination of them. One is uh, the the P plus P definition, prejudice plus power, people in positions of power having and acting on conscious or unconscious racial prejudice. Uh, So that could apply in policing to, you know, cops having such prejudice or other people at various points in the criminal justice system, but I think also it often just means any kind of unjustly caused widespread disparity, which doesn't necessarily have to involve intention by anybody. It could just be like you have certain realities that existed at the time in the early 60s when America stopped being officially an apartheid country, uh, and those haven't really been fixed yet, and so you have predictably disparate outcomes and I think both are real and both are problems, but it is probably important to make that distinction. Do you wanna? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can go okay. next if you'd yeah, like. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, um, I mostly agree with Dr. Ben Burgess's uh, example. I think that um, systemic racism, to give a very broad and simple definition, is simply uh, a, the outcome of the systems that exist in our nation, in our world, Uh, when they are racially biased in one way or the other. If a certain group seems to be getting kind of, you know, shit on by the system, or if a certain group is getting by better on the system, then that would be some type of racial bias or systemic racism. Okay, well, I guess we're already going to start off with a disagreement because I don't think simply an outcome uh, is... is, I don't think that's what systemic racism... If it creates a disparate outcome, because sometimes disparate outcomes can exist outside of just 
of systems. I mean, you could have the most equitable, fair laws on the books, but you could still have disparate outcomes. I mean, I don't think that's a good definition of a systemic racism. I think uh, intent is important. I think the actual substance of the policy is important. I don't think just the I don't think the outcome is the most important metric when you're talking about systemically racist institutions or uh, or, or any or laws or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the same side with him. That means I literally physically and emotionally agree with them. <laughs> and what we're experiencing when we're talking about disparate outcomes being indicative automatically of systemic racism is something very familiar to the atheist community. It's the God of the gaps argument, but with racism inserted in place of God. So there's no reason we would expect equal outcomes because we've never seen that across any countries, any civilizations throughout history. So to say that because we're seeing unequal outcomes, which exists within races, between races, and all different between genders of the same race. Uh, therefore, that is the product of or blamed on without any additional evidence, historical racism doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, no, notice that I did say, at least in mine, unjustly caused, right? But, but I'm also curious, when you say that you, we, we don't have, you know, we never see equal outcomes, I mean, you do, right? I mean, like, in other words, like, as far as I know, maybe you know something I don't, but there's no, like, widespread, predictable, massive difference in outcomes between, like, brown-eyed people and blue-eyed people. I mean, as the only independent variable, not as far as I know. Okay, so, I mean, that, that does seem to be an important difference, you know, with the racial case and something that seems like makes a little bit less God in the gaps and a little bit more, like, inference to the best explanation uh, Sorry, man. I'm actually uh, not familiar with the brown-eyed, blue-eyed uh, data, so I can't. I, I don't know if that's really, true. Or uh, really? Not, so. Okay, you're not willing to take. You know. No, I don't know if it's true. Or not. It might not <laughs> okay. be true. I have no idea. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's assume for the sake of argument that uh, that blue, you know, brown. Wait, do you eyed, have data on that? I do not have. Okay, data. so you're just you're, you're uh, just assuming. Yeah, okay. I, I am assuming. I don't okay. think I'm taking a big risk, but uh, but I am assuming that uh, that you do not have massive differences in outcome like you have racially between brown-eyed, blue-eyed people. If you well, can find otherwise, I'll be fascinated. I mean, black, black if there people, is a difference, how do you explain that difference, though? I would be shocked if there was a difference. And if there was a difference, then yeah, I would have no idea. I think that, I think that we'd have to start investigating that. But one reason why I would have no idea is we don't have an elephant in the room like it being the case one generation ago that we had tons of laws discriminating against you know, whatever eye color, you know, would be equivalent to non-white people in this scenario. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see the data on that. I, okay. I, I don't think it's a fair assumption. You, you might, don't, you don't think actually, that's a fair no, assumption? No, I think there might actually, no, because well, I, I think we see disparities <laughs> in nature. Like, we see it with trees, we see it with everything. So uh, I, I don't think it's a fair assumption. Okay, to okay. I think, oh, I, you pick any individual attribute and say, well, you know, you know, I mean, for example, you could do height, for example, and we see disparities when it comes to height and success and things like that. We see it with attractiveness. We see it with mm -hmm. all kinds of things. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's strictly, uh, I don't think it's fair to assume. Oh, also, sorry, also black people would disproportionately have brown eyes and white people would disproportionately go. have blue eyes. So okay. those disparities might actually all be there. All right, all right. If, if you guys really don't believe that we can, we can confidently make that prediction, then um, fair enough, Xander. 
Yeah, um, you mentioned before that uh, you know obviously a difference in outcome doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Obviously, in any society on Earth, there will be difference in outcomes. People are going to have more money than other people. Some people will be stronger, taller, smarter, faster, anything like that, right? The problem with systemic racism is that we seem to have a lot of data that suggests a disproportionate amount of well, a disproportionate amount of bullshit that it seems the black community in this country has to go through that the white community goes through at a much smaller rate. But I don't even think that matters. I don't think intent needs to be there, and I don't think the fact that it's disproportionately harming one group alone is, some, is the reason why we ought to fight this. Um, a rising tide raises all ships, and in the same way, the things that harm the black community, uh, the systems that harm the black community, also harm white people. When white neighborhoods are over-policed, uh, well, when poor neighborhoods are over-policed, some white people get over-policed. It's, you know, it can hurt anybody. These are things that we need to broaden out and attack on a, uh, on, on a level beyond just the, the politicized sort of like, is it, is it racially motivated? Is it systemic racism or not? We can see that there's a disparity. We can see that the systems put into our place are not really working to cut down on crime or improve black people's posi position in this country. I think that's what we got to focus on. What do you mean by over-policing? Well, I mean, you can go to anything like uh, uh, the idea of broken windows policing, where you police neighborhoods that have a lot of property damage, poor neighborhoods that can't really afford to keep the, uh, you know, things looking nice and ship shape. You can talk about stop and frisk. You can talk about the militari militarization of our police. These things just don't seem to result in a drop in crime. Right? So if you, if you don't do something like stop and frisk, but you have a higher proportion of police in an area where there might be more homicides, uh, violent crime, and things like that, is that still considered over-policing? Um, it depends on the context. I don't know exactly if you're referring to like, do you want to give an example? I mean, just pick most... Like uh, policing a neighborhood that has more crime? Yeah. Just generally having more cops there? Not principally. Yeah. Not necessarily. Okay. So what, what's an example of a place you would say that has an over-policing problem? I think the perfect example, and what I hoped you would bring up, would be like New York, right? Back when New mm. York was doing the broken windows policing. Like that's, a, that's like a pretty good example. <laughs> right. And how would that be an example of over-policing? Yeah, it just didn't seem like uh, it was working, right? I mean, we did see a drop in crime, but that coalesced with a, or sorry, correlated with a massive drop in crime across the entire nation and the world in the 90s. Um, other than that, it just, it seems like, and maybe you've got some data or something to suggest that it does work, it doesn't seem like over-policing these neighborhoods, broken windows, stop and frisk, anything like that actually worked. In fact, it seems to be overwhelmingly agreed upon that it didn't work. Wait, are you saying that stop and frisk? Well, what happened is, is that there's, there's a, in general a drop in crime nationwide right around after the crime bill, although some places like New York saw a drop in crime a few years before. This is very famously outlined in the Freakonomics book and movie where they talk about how New York had abortion legalized before and they posit that that might be the contributing factor. So it's not all nationwide uh, at the same exact time, although this allows us to think that maybe not a lot of the stuff that we did worked because the drop did happen nationwide, but New York City up until very recently was considered one of the safest big cities in the country. And you stop and frisk as an example of over-policing, and I'm not sure what you're basing that on, so I'm yeah, just curious. Stop, stop and frisk is not, it just doesn't seem like one of the reasons that the country or New York City has gotten safer. Uh, I did a lot of research leading up to this, and everything that I read about stop and frisk, everything that I read about um, the over-policing New York City okay, seems to suggest that nothing to do with the drop and crime. what aspect of stop and frisk was over-policing? You keep saying everything that I've so read about this. So stop and frisk basically means that if you suspect somebody might be com committing I know what stop and frisk some, means, yeah. but like where, so, what part do they go overboard? It seems like stopping people just because they seem a little bit shady isn't really a good way to engage as your law enforcement industry or law enforcement uh, uh, 
system in your country. It doesn't really seem like stopping people because they're brown or a little bit too, you know, shady looking. Doesn't really seem like. So you're saying that they were stopping that. people based on on their race or. It seems that way. Yeah. I mean, if we want to look at other other examples, because the we way can. that stop and frisk was conceived was that if there was some, first of all, you send the police out to areas with high levels of crime. Stop and frisk specifically mm -hmm. was about shootings. And if you get something described like a suspect or whatever, you see somebody that masses, matches the description, you would stop question, it was stop question and frisk initially, mm -hmm. and then frisk the person based on that questioning, right? And under Michael Bloomberg, the program got expanded. So you went from a cap of around 90,000 stops, I believe in Giuliani's last year, to somewhere around 800,000 stops. And now you're, you're seen to say that that like the reason they were stopping these people was because they were black or brown? The data seems to suggest that. If you want, we can also look at some, uh, Wait, some other how studies. How does the data suggest that? I'm just... I mean, we can look at other studies and correlate that as well. I mean, the, I know that you probably disagree with them, but a lot of the academic institutions that have collected data on this specific phenomenon having to do with stop and frisk in New York City have all come to the conclusion that not only did it not contribute uh, substantially to, the, to a drop in crime, a drop in violent crime or possession of illegal weapons, uh, guns or firearms in New York City, uh, on top of that, it seems like if we compare that to other studies that have been done in other areas, such as D.C. or um, I believe there was a study that was done that was like a conglomeration of like 100 million different traffic stops that all came to the conclusion that police seemed to have a lower bar for pulling over and searching the cars of black drivers. Not only that, but police seem to overwhelmingly pull over drivers that are black less when it gets dark out and you can't really tell how what race they are. And it seems like if we look at all this data and all these studies overwhelmingly, like, you know, maybe there's a little bit of bias in our police force, you know, and you know, there could be reasons for that. And we can talk about those reasons, but overall, I think it doesn't really matter. I think at the end of the day, these systems are hurting everybody. White, black people, Hispanic people, Asian Americans, everybody is getting hurt by these policies. They're hurting yeah. anybody who is poor. I, I, I did also just want to say on the question of whether stop and frisk, um, disproportionately uh, was applied to, uh, to minorities. If it wasn't, that would have really disappointed the guy who oversaw that big expansion. You're talking about Michael Bloomberg, who in leaked audio, right, said 95% of your murders, murders, and, uh, murders and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it all out to the cops, Bloomberg said. They're male minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York, that's true in virtually every city. Uh, you know, some of the unintended consequence, people say, oh my God, you're arresting kids for marijuana, they're all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put the cops in minority uh, neighborhoods. Uh, and he talks about... Uh, you got to finish the quote. Why? Know, because and, that's where all the crime is. And the way we get the guns out of the kids' hand is throw them up against the wall and frisk them. And it seems to me that in that quote, in the quote, you know, he's saying that he thinks that... The description, the one you can Xerox and hand out to all the cops, is male minority 16 to 25. So the mayor, at least, on top of this system, thinks and expects and hopes that it's going to, uh, it's going to specifically target people for being male minority group members between 16 and 25. Uh, the data that Xander mentions you know, seems to show that disproportionately this is who stopped and frisked. Wait, so, so disproportionately to what? The population or the amount that they're committing the crime? Well, I mean, I think that I, so maybe you can tell me specifically, you know, what, uh, what you were looking at. You know, you were the one who referred to it, Xander, but I think that I would say, you know, certainly I know on other issues, uh, the, you know, like shootings, I know that, the, uh, that there really isn't a correlation between like neighborhoods where there are police shootings and neighborhoods where there's been a uh, been a higher rate of, uh, of violent crime. There was a 
study I know Minneapolis Star Tribune in uh, 2018 looked at like 18 years of data and showed that there really, you know, there really wasn't one. There seems to be a lot of other evidence that you can't really, a lot of other police practices can't really be reduced to that. Uh, for example, you know, members of minority groups are more likely to have their cars searched for drugs, even though uh, white drivers are more likely to have, you know, who are searched are more likely to have. That was the I was referencing yeah. a second ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to talk so about that. I, I want to. I want to stay on stopping first for a second. So the quote that you that you yeah. said from Michael Bloomberg is true. Stop and Frisk is about shootings. Go into the NYPD's data. They are the biggest data-driven police department on planet Earth. And find me a year where the shooting suspects in New York were below 94%. From year to year over the last 20 years, we're below 94% to 97% of the shooting suspects recorded by the NYPD are black or Hispanic. So what he was describing was reality when he was talking about this is the description that we constantly deal with because that's what the program was about. And as far as disproportionate targeting. So, so it's, it's, it seems like you're, you've switched because earlier you were challenging the assertion that people were being stopped for- No, things. no, I said over overstopped, which considering the highest amount of black and Hispanics ever targeted by stop and frisk in a single year was 86%. And their minimum 94% of the suspects in the crimes that stop and frisk is designed to address, they're being under targeted. So, by the percentage, but uh, you know, but you were not to be clear because it really sounded like a minute ago you were challenging the claim that people were being stopped for fitting this general description. No, no, they're not being stopped for that. The NYPD operates on a CompStat system. So, so, they so, are so, sent so, to so, areas so, 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 with if higher rates. If they're not being stopped for that, then no, 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 they're not being over targeted based on their race. So, but crime, but, but that's, crime but that's as a, a little bit of a arrest rates there. or stop rates in in proportion to population is the most worthless statistic ever. If you're getting disproportionate crime, you would expect disproportionate stops. I'm not talking about statistics, I'm talking about the confession from the mayor. You know, you said earlier, you know, you're shifting the goalpost for, to over-targeting. No, no, the mayor wasn't what, what confessing. You, what, what, you said, what you said earlier was, oh, wait a second, you think people were, you know, were stopped, you know, for, uh, for being minorities? And it seems to me that in the leaked confession, uh, he is saying that he hopes that's how his his massive expansion of the program he was is going to work out. He, he was describing how the like. he was describing how the program works. That's why I said you should finish the quote because the end of the quote was him saying why because that's who's committing all the crime. This is based on the numbers. NYPD sends cops to areas because they use the CompStat system, which matches which maps crimes based on reports geographically. If 94% minimum- that's not at all what he's describing in that quote. If 94% if minimum of the shootings, he, when he's saying throw them against the wall and look for the guns, that stop and frisk, occur in these areas and you're mapping crime, or I'm sorry, are committed by black or Hispanics, and you're targeting those areas based on their prevalence of shootings, you would expect 95% of your suspects to, I'm sorry, you would expect this result. If you're just following the, if you're following the crime, which they are, but, well, the, but, the, oh. but that's not what he says. He doesn't say map it out based on the geography. He says take this description: male, minority, 16 to 25, Xerox it, give it to all the cops, and that's who we want to apply stop and yeah, frisk. Yeah, that's to. describing reality after yeah, the fact. That's who's committing the, the the shootings. So okay, but I mean, I just want to be clear because earlier you were pushing back against the idea that people were being stopped and frisked 
because of their race. Which I am pushing back against. Yeah. Okay, but wait, but like that is exactly what's being described in that quote. But he, he's not saying that he's targeting them because they're minorities. He's, he's saying, saying that they, he's, he's, saying he's, saying that he's, he's targeting them based on fitting this profile that he thinks should no, be Xeroxed and passed out to all the cops. Again, if you male finish. Male minority, 16 to 25. That's if what If you he finish says. the quote, it literally ends with why? Because that's where all the crime happens. Yes, but that's compatible with what I just said. No, it's not because they're not stopping. You're uh, saying that the determining the factor the for the stop is race. On Wall Street, yeah. wearing a suit, like that's not who they're stopping. This so is still they're going into profiling. specific neighborhoods. So, they, they're so listen, I'm not a fan of stop and frisk. By the way, I actually agree with you that it didn't uh, reduce the crime there. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't agree because you see, even when uh, when De Blasio came in and the numbers dropped down drastically, the crime still went down significantly. So I agree with you on that. So I, I'm not a fan of stop and frisk for, uh, you know, I, I don't think they disproportionately stopped. Uh, you know, blacks and Latinos, because again, they, they stopped them at a lower rate than they were responsible for committing the shootings. Uh, but it, it's, I just think it's unconstitutional. That's why I don't. Yes, yeah, I have it. my issues with stop and frisk on similar grounds, but the idea yeah. that it was racist is. Well, like, again, no. I mean, the, the, the claim the mayor explicitly makes is that it's justified because the crime rates, but he does claim that people are being stopped for. Fitting the description, male minority. No, 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 that's not what he said. You can't no, that, Xerox the description. No, he didn't say they're being stopped because they fit this description. He says you could pass this description out because mm -hmm. that's who fits the description. You know, black males or black yeah. and Hispanic males, 16 to 24 male. That's who fits the description, like almost all of the time in, in New York. Yeah. I guess the question this would be then why? I mean, like, we have to talk about why, right? Isn't this a problem? Uh, yeah, crime so is a problem. Why, why do black and Hispanic males aged 16 to 24 commit these uh, disproportionate crimes? Well, why does it seem like the black community in America generally seems to commit more crime? Uh, why does it seem like cross-culturally they commit more crime? Why do you think they commit? I'm just asking you a I'm question. asking why you. Do you why, do, why cross-culturally in other nations? Know. You don't know? I mean, I don't well, then know why even thinking? ask this question? Why are we? Why are we even asking this question? Why does country commit more crime? Where does crime come from? Why do people commit crime? Generally, it's a lot of factors. It's never just one thing. It's okay, usually okay, but there's, but there's, there's, mostly there's, it's, no, it's no, it's actually not. not. No, it's actually not. Crime with poverty. It's actually no. Well. You literally if can. If you're in a bad position in, in in your life, you can usually track that pretty well. And frankly, over policing doesn't tend to help. I guarantee the last thing any of us right now wants to happen is for a cop to come in point his finger at one of us and send us to prison. That would ruin all of our lives, even if it was for six months. Um, this kind of thing is obviously very prevalent in these, in these black communities. There's a reason why um, there is more crime committed by these demographics. It's due to the fact that most of these demographics are living in much lower income areas. That's usually where you're going to see more crime. I think there's a route to that problem that we can talk about. Um, but I mean, I, I'm just guess I'm curious if you disagree with that as a as a broader statement in and of itself. No, I think well, you got it backwards for the most part. It's that uh, crime causes poverty rather than poverty causing no, that's, crime. Yeah, for sure. That is that okay. is if most you, definitely not true. So I, I have a question: so. <laughs> If crime tracks so well with poverty, then why in the 1950s did was the black homicide rate going down as compared to the 1960s if their incomes were going up? I'm not familiar with that particular statistic, but it doesn't really seem relevant to today's political space when you consider the fact that it's been about 70 years, maybe? And it seems like our current uh, state of racial uh, and economic, even, economically, everybody 
was, was rising up in the 50s and 60s. Everybody was doing better in the 50s and 60s because at that time, well, we're following like World War II. Europe had gotten fucking destroyed by World War II. Not, we didn't even get touched by that besides Hawaii. So our industry was able to take off in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s a little bit. Other than that's when we started. But your like, whole point was poverty, yeah, with poverty, poverty causes crime. Yes. And it like, brings up a point and you have no yes. counter so, so, crime. So, 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 so wait, a, wait a second. Though, reason, but you can't possibly think that that. Also, homicide is not like it, the type of crime that people commit because they're poor, by the way. And it is not the most common type of crime by far. Okay, so that one's not related thing. to poverty. Yeah. Homicide, there's a lot of different reasons why homicide can happen. This is like trying to, if, you're, if you want to talk about the type of crime that demographics can commit, you need to make an ar argument to me that like, why would black people commit more homicide? What, what argument do you I'm have? I'm also very intrigued by this claim. This claim that I'm, I'm curious. That, I, I'm uh, curious. I want to know what you the think. Crime, no, the crime, the crime poverty. That's why I'm asking you. Okay, this is. This if you're is not going to answer, I don't this care is, about this answering. This is this is fun for everybody. They, I'm asking you. No, yeah, I'm asking I want to hear. I want to so hear. So they have a. Uh, so I'm very curious about this claim that uh, crime po causes poverty more than the other way around. I think uh, that. Poverty, not necessarily absolute poverty. I think, especially if we're looking at international comparisons, but I think really, you know, poverty in the context of economic inequality, poverty alongside riches. I think that does uh, that does produce uh, that does produce crime. Uh, I think that you know, I think that there are, you know, ethnic groups in the United States that uh, have very low crime rates now, uh, but uh, had much higher crime rates. You know, when members of that group, you know, were you know, do, were likely to be very poor, you know, because they're recent immigrants, et cetera. And, and I'm just very, very, you know, I, I don't think, by the way, that you can, you know, that you can just say, hey, here's one particular time when the, you know, the lines aren't going in the right direction. So therefore, we're going to throw out this generalization about one of these things tending to increase the other one over history. But I'm most curious about this claim that crime causes poverty because it seems like, given that um, that Black Americans uh, have, you know, continuously, uh, you know, had uh, higher poverty rates throughout American history since emancipation, it, it seems very odd to think that that would be what was caused, you know, that that would be caused by higher crime rates rather than thinking that the higher rate of poverty is causing the higher rate of crime. I want to clarify something I said before, by the way. Um, little correcting some lefty misinformation. Uh, I didn't, uh, when I said that uh, it was poverty causing crime, I meant to say wealth inequality. Yes, it is from like the impoverished side of that, but wealth inequality seems to contribute more to poverty than, or sorry, to crime than just poverty. Um, yeah, you know. So um, he said crime caused, but I'm sure what he meant is that uh, crime drives poverty, and there's a number of ways that this can happen. If you, First of all, you need a basis of rule of law in order to have a successful economic system. So if you have constantly people stealing and violating other people's property rights, that makes it far less secure to invest in those areas. If you're in an area that is more likely to be vandalized by riots or more likely to be stolen from, insurance premiums are higher. This is why we constantly see in a lot of these like you know poor areas or ghetto stores what we end up seeing is higher prices but lower profit margins because the cost of doing business in these areas is significantly higher. On top of that, if you're deciding who you're going to lend to, I know a lot of you want to talk about the effects of redlining because that's like a go-to topic, but these are the exact same effects that you described from redlining that are happening in these high crime areas. Nobody wants to lend money for a far less secure investment 
if people are just going to steal and put this place out of business or if they're going to riot over somebody dying and burn the place down, this all ends up adding into the cost. There's a very good study about the effect of the LA riots, and essentially it took them about 10 years to get those neighborhoods back to where they were before the riots. And that was back in like the 1990s, so like let's say 1992, I forgot exactly when, correct me nerds in the, in the chat of the live stream, to 2002, and that's just them getting back to 1992 levels in those areas. So yeah, you're creating long-term consequences by allowing criminality to go on unchallenged in a lot of these areas. So, so if we have pretty straightforward stories in both directions, here's how crime can, uh, can cause you know, poverty, uh, here's, you know, here's, how, you know, here's how poverty can cause crime, and we're comparing the explanation to see which one is simpler, which one makes more sense. I would say that one very relevant difference is that if you're saying, hey, how is it that you start out with a higher poverty rate uh, if, you, you know, if you think that that's explanatorily primary uh, rather than the crime? That's really easy to answer, right? Why is it that you'd have a higher poverty rate among people who uh, up until less than 60 years ago uh, were, you know, were legally on the books discriminated against in numerous ways that kept people in very low-wage jobs, et cetera? Not a mystery. Poverty among everybody tends to People, there is upward mobility, but tends to perpetuate itself intergenerationally. That's very easy to understand. Whereas if you think that the explanatorily primary thing is the, uh, is the crime, not the poverty, then I think you really do owe us an explanation. What is it that's causing this higher crime rate? Where does it come from? Well, there's like a number of factors. Like a lot of it is down to the breakup of the family. This is why, I mean, if you can look at all the data, all the studies on the difference between two parent married households versus unmarried households and the outcomes for those children. There's also another study I know you want to bring up about the um, about when they compare in the 99th percentile. I don't know if you want to bring that up. Oh yeah, well, I, I mean, I already know what the retort's going to be, but I mean, if you want to look at arrest rates, for example, uh, when based on the based on, uh, I believe, the income of the parents, or I can't remember if it was the wealth or the income of the parents, for blacks and whites to match on that, uh, a, a, a black person whose parents' wealth or income, I can't remember which, uh, is in the 99th percentile, so the top 1%, you'd have to, it'd be the same as a white person whose parents' income or wealth is at the 36th percentile. Now, you could say, well, that's because they're racist police and they arrest for no reason and things like that, but that's the, uh, that's the economic difference you'd have to see in order to have the arrest rates be the same. Okay, so I think I heard it answer my question about where it is that this higher crime rate would come from if not for extremely easy to understand higher poverty rates. And that answer was, um, I don't know, higher and lower rates of marriage, higher rates of, uh, of you know. There's a lot of, of cultural. Of, 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 okay, there might be a lot of reasons, but sure. that's, that's the one that we heard. And I think it's important to, to take a minute on it because I think any fair reading of the evidence on this would show that poverty causes uh, you know, people to have a higher, you know, to have more trouble you know, keeping together relationships much more than the other way around. But they, they had higher rates of marriage when they were poor than they do yeah. now. 
Yeah, and you think there's no like there's no other social change in the United States that would be relevant to why that would be the case? Wait, so, but, but that's you so, brought so, up so, the so, point. So, that's your point. You brought up the point that it's like, oh, it's the economic hard times that result. It's like, wait, but people, people think what do you, they, they have, they're doing better economically than they were back in well, the era of Jim Crow. Think, why do you think that uh, black the black community is starting to, I guess, forego? Uh, more nuclear families. Why do you think it's starting to How come you, you never give any explanations? I'm, I'm, I'm asking a question. I'm curious. Could, do you have an explanation? I, if I were to guess, it would probably have something to do with the combination of culture and policing. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that a lot of uh, black men being incarcerated probably has a lot to do with it, and I think another part of it would be culture. Yeah, I think that there is sort of a culture in the black community, mostly informed by racism, you know, the racism that the black communities had to face that has had these results. And I think it's bad. I think it's a cyclical problem. I think it's uh, in hands in hand with both the, um, the over-policing of poorer areas, which typically tend to be black, um, the, uh, the school to prison pipeline, which we could get into, um, you know, the, the tenancy, I mean, obviously we know that police, uh, there was actually a really interesting uh, investigation that the DOJ did on the Ferguson Police, Depart police Department, where they found that the, the bar for even investigating or for like stopping or, or checking like a, a um, or giving a ticket even. If you stop somebody, gave them a ticket or a warning, um, it, if it was the cop's discretion, if the person who they pulled over was black, the cop was overwhelmingly more likely to give them a ticket instead of a warning. Simple stuff like that seems to, you know, kind of contribute to these problems significantly. If we want to talk about solutions. What's the median age of white people versus black people in Ferguson? Probably, like, I'd say the average black person age would probably be, like, somewhere mid-early 20s and old, older white people, probably, usually, yeah, and yeah, younger people tend do, to commit crimes. Do you crime. think younger black people or older white people are more likely to commit crimes? I'm just curious. Probably younger people in general, overwhelmingly. Do you think that's a problem, though? Also that's young, also a problem we can talk about. So, yeah. If you want to talk about the problem, uh, our problems with men, and especially young men, uh, being incarcerated, that's a great problem to talk about. Our entire prison system is completely broken. It is not one that is conducive to a, uh, a rehabilitative uh, uh, lifestyle. Every single person I've ever talked to is, who has any experience with prison tells me that anyone who goes in there like a petty minor league criminal comes out a bigger criminal than they were when they went in. Nobody gets by in prison without cr committing more crime and getting involved with bad people. This is just not the way that we want to dissuade demographics from you know, engaging in criminality. It's only, it's cyclical. You talk about disparate treatment in Ferguson specifically, and Ferguson has a significantly older white population. This accounted for On that. top of that, no it isn't. It's, I've read the Department of Justice report. I didn't just cite factoids from it. No, it, they it's, it accounted for have a significantly older population. On top of that, Ferguson is not an island. There are, they're an area that has one of the few grocery stores in the small town over there, so people are driving in and getting pulled over. So the idea that it's 67% black, yet 85% of the population of the people getting tickets are black, therefore racism. It accounts for population. Again, no, you, didn't, you didn't listen to what he just said before. Is, is, would be nice if they were an island in the middle of the sea, but people drive <laughs> into Ferguson okay. that don't live in Ferguson, especially since Ferguson has the grocery store that a lot of these little towns around it don't have. Why? Uh, wait, wait, wait. So what difference does that make to what I said? Driving in and getting pulled because over. you're accounting for the population of Ferguson and not the areas around that go into Ferguson. Like, yes, but that does not I, change I not, the fact that the police expect, engage in what seems to be uh, racial profiling. I, I, would regardless. Not expect, I would not expect in a town of 67% black population where the median age is 20 years younger than the white population on its own to have any equivalency in any type of ticketing or anything like that. Let alone the fact that the people driving through Ferguson don't by law have to live in Ferguson. 
Uh, so the people who are coming into the area, the demographics of the area tell you nothing about that. You're talking about people being pulled over. So we got to talk about who's driving in. This is east of St. Louis. You think people ever drive the 16 miles from East St. Louis to Ferguson uh, and then get pulled over? Maybe that adds into who's getting pulled over? Of course it adds into who's going through there, but it doesn't contribute to who police are choosing to pull over. Obviously in total think, numbers, if it, obviously if there are total, if we, obviously if we look at total numbers, people? black people are gonna get pulled over more. Though per capita, it seems like they overwhelmingly but select again, black people. Again, per capita is accounting for the population yes. in Ferguson. You're not accounting for per the Per capita of those in. that were pulled over, for those that were on the road that the police stopped. Yeah. Not only, they commit more not crimes. only okay. didn't, I, I, That's so, still so, racial so, profiling. So, 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 what, what do you mean it's called racial profiling? Hold on. It sure, it sure, it sure sounded like the, the stat. I, I, I want to make two notes. One is uh, we'll, we'll come to you, Ben, because uh. we'll since we've heard from you. And then, Sean, your mic is, if you're able to, uh, you might even just have to speak louder. It could be that the battery is unexpectedly low. Oh, my but God. They said that they can Yeah, you. dude, it's, uh, no, it's off. Oh. Did the battery Is it dead? The battery might have died, because it was on earlier. I know for a fact it was on earlier. was lighting a blue earlier. Do you want to switch it out or? Let's see. Do you have a battery? I'm surprised that it would be like that. Do you have a little charge? I can take mine and like put it right here for Let's both. Let's try that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll, let me grab that in the meantime. You got a portable charger. I can USB. Well, I was going to ask Sandra a question in any case. You want me to do that while we're doing this? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I just wanted to be clear because I haven't seen this data that, that you two both have. So uh, this. You know, you said this is per capita of people who are pulled over. So in other words, that part of what this is saying, even if it could be the case that there's an innocent reason why more black people than white people be pulled over, you're saying that out of people who are pulled over, white people who are pulled over in Ferguson are less likely to get tickets than black people who are pulled over there. Is that correct? I, I'm really underselling how damning the DOJ investigation was. They found some really fucked up shit. I can't list everything right now, though I highly recommend checking it out. Just look up DOJ uh, Ferguson Police Department investigation. It should be like first or second thing that comes up. The, the official like page should be pretty high up on the list. And uh, they found a lot of really interesting stuff. One of them was that obviously the bar for pulling over uh, a, a black driver was significantly lower than the bar to pull over a white driver. Um, they also found that like police tend to, if they, it was up to their own discretion, they typically would give more tickets to black people and uh, more warnings to white people, even when uh, if tickets were given like after through the legal process, like based on evidence and whatnot, like looking at footage. Even though when you account for that, overwhelmingly white people got uh, got stuck with tickets more because they were actually committing the crime more and getting caught by it through our legal processes more. I want to get back to that 100 million uh, stop sure. study that you brought yeah. up. Well, I did want to focus oh, on Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I don't know how the no, audience is coming. Uh, yeah, so like I said, the, the reason I bring up the data of who's being pulled over versus population is because in 1999, there was a Department of Justice investigation into the New Jersey State Troopers, which was incited by an incident of alleged police brutality. Now, unlike the Michael Brown shooting, which was a slam dunk, 100% justified, give that officer a gold star because Michael Brown was proven to be the aggressor in that situation by all the forensic evidence, don't at me. Um, this one was a little more questionable. So one of the ways that they designed this study, because they were worried about exactly what I'm talking about, the, about the drivers on the road not necessarily matching the demographics 
of the people who lived in the area was this. So they, in two different ways, they conducted surveys at toll booths in one, and in another, they took high-resolution photos of every driver on the road to see who was being pulled over. And what they found out was that black people statistically committed more traffic violations in certain zones that they were looking at, and they were not being targeted based on their race. And in fact, the biggest predictor of whether or not you were going to get pulled over, despite the fact that the numbers were disproportionate to population, was whether you were actually committing a traffic offense. Now, after this study was set to be published, which by law under the Clinton administration, it was supposed to be published, the Bush administration's DOJ didn't want to release it because they thought it was controversial because they were already instituting reforms against the New Jersey police because they had already been declared to be racist. Hilariously, the New Jersey state troopers said, based on their data being confronted by the DOJ before the study was concluded, that I guess we probably were racially targeting them based on the speeding ticket data. It turned out to not be the case because you have to do studies like this where you capture who's on the road, not just who's being pulled over. I was like four years old when during the Clinton administration, so I'll leave that one to Ben Burgess. <laughs> Man, you know how to hurt a guy, all right. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually hoping uh, to, uh, to go back to the earlier claim that, uh, that, if, that if the crime comes before the poverty, that you know, so we need to look for some alternate thing at the end of this chain of causation to, uh, to start the, uh, the, uh, the higher uh, crime rate. What is it? And uh, I heard there were numerous things, but the only specific thing I heard was about marriage rates. And, uh, and I, what I wanted to know is if it was the case that it was already true that there was a difference in white and black crime rates at a time when there was much less of a difference in white and black marriage rates. Yeah, I'd prefer if we go back to what he just brought up so you guys could address that. To, the, to, to, this, to, this, to this study that I, no, that's like, you I have- heard of the New Jersey Turnpike study? I'm not familiar with the New Jersey Turnpike study, no. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna like, I, I, I have nothing to say okay. about this, but, they, uh, but like, I think that this is a little bit more relevant to the sort so, of bigger picture of what we're talking about than this particular study. So there's a, there's a multitude of different things that can drive crime and like desperation, like when you're in desperate traits of poverty, has been one, but as James Q. Wilson, who has written a lot on criminal justice, has mm -hmm. outlined, the idea that we're committing crime to meet our basic needs, like you know, back in the day when we we're like you know, literally versus starve, uh, like starving, it, it, it really kind of changed in like the 20th century because we had abundance due to the industrial revolution. So like you can say poverty like correlates with crime, and like I said, I like to say that it drives crime because uh, I'm sorry, crime drives poverty because it's not the only cause of it. Um, but um, it's not necessarily, like I can see there are instances obviously where desperation is created by poverty and that can drive crime the other way. That is possible. But, 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 but that's not what either of us were talking do, about. Wait, can I ask a question? For, do yeah. you think, um, I mean obviously we see that there's a very disproportionate amount of crime and poverty uh, for the black community here in America. Do you think the black community was impoverished first or committing crime first here well, in America? They, they were poor, but they were Northern blacks before the end of uh, slavery, because you know, we're gonna talk about slavery at some point, uh, were, did have higher homicide rates than Northern whites even then. So like, and they- Yeah, Northern, and also Northern much higher poverty well. rates even but, then. But like, I, I, every time I get into a criminal justice debate, we always get bogged down on the crime poverty thing. So like, I would like to concede poverty as the cause of crime to you guys, just, sure. just for the purpose of going forward, and ask you, 
And well, but you're wrong. But I would like well, to no. This I mean, clearly we're right no, because no. you've not been able no, to provide no, because, any sort because, of alternate because, explanation, and you've said well, a bunch no, of you said a bunch of things that are entirely no, consistent no, a, with the commonsensical, extremely well-established correlation between. Well, first of all, correlation doesn't equal causation. But the reason economic inequality, which is what we both said, not well, the reason the reason. But that the high rate that poverty coinciding with relative wealth well, is something that does seem to uh, seem to lead to higher. Well, first of all, demographics in poverty in similar poverty don't commit crimes at the same rates. But the reason I want to move on from that is because even if we accept the premise that poverty is the cause of crime, the idea that you address crime by addressing poverty is what's called the underlying cause fallacy. There's nothing to say that that is the most efficient way to deal with this dramatically different, uh, different homicide rates. If you can incarcerate and deter people from committing these homicides on the policing level, then you don't have to like do all these abstract wealth redistributions. One day, we're, one day we're gonna, one day we're gonna, one day we're gonna arrest poverty and you know set all these Aladdins who are just committing. Okay. 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 So, now, now right. I think we're getting but, but if, that, if you have a view of the world where people who want to do something about poverty in order to do something about crime think we can arrest poverty, or you think it's super abstract, then yeah, I understand a little bit. In, in, the, in the hopes that that will have think, some like trickle-down effect on we, crime. I think that we are, you know, I think that there are a fair amount of things that uh, I think, but this, know, I think, I think there's evidence that, uh, that higher wages, uh, you know, when wages are increased, uh, that, that, uh, that that lowers recidivism rate, even for people who have already committed crimes. Uh, I think that, the, that there are things like establishing, you know, preschool programs and after-school programs uh, that seem to have a lower effect. I think even, that, even expanding access to health care seems to have a lower crime rate. And actually, the carceral solution does not seem to have worked out that well. There is really not a lot of evidence that we're getting much bang for our buck in terms of the crime rate from these ridiculous prison detentions. Sure, I'm not. I'm not even disputing I, that poverty has an effect on crime. It's okay. just I don't think it's the, uh, the the most important factor. But I think we're also getting away. Most but, hold on. But uh, hold on. I want to ask one question. Oh, sure. Okay. So, um, do you? So, what you, your basic argument is that po people in poverty are more prone to crime, right? And therefore, we should have different types of interventions not related to the criminal justice system, right? To, in order to deal with the poverty, their underlying issue, or I think, whatever. I think there are cases where fixing the underlying issue doesn't fix the effect. Okay. I don't think this is one of them. And that we're like over policing the, the poor and all that. Okay. I think, so, I, I mean, I think it depends what you mean by over policing. I think that, like, I think that there's a more militarized style of policing that tends to be applied to poor I, neighborhoods in general, which I think basically in the 1970s. Rather than expanding the great society, you know, go further in the direction of social democracy, oh. I think there was essentially a political decision that it would be both politically and literally cheaper to just focus to just amp up policing, you know, militarize more militarized policing and you know, incarcerate, you know, expanding the carceral state. And that really, what we should be talking about is reversing that. I completely agree with what Xander said at the beginning about how while I do think that. You know, the, that you know, racial disparities uh, in various aspects of the criminal justice system uh, are a result of America's bad racial history. And I, you know, and I do think that some of the, you know, you know like the, uh, 
like traffic stop disparities narrow it as it gets darker is pretty hard to explain on the biracial prejudice. But I also yeah, yeah, don't yeah, think that's the most important part of the problem. I think that they, I think if we had an underclass of people living in poor neighborhoods, being subject to more militarized policing, having worse outcomes in every way, having higher crime rates, and there were exactly demographically correct proportions of them who were black or white, I don't think that would be justice. I think that we need to do the kinds of things Andrew was talking about earlier to help everybody who's in that situation. Yeah. I had some suggestions there, by the way. First one, complete federal legalization of marijuana. First one would absolutely help everybody. I've gone, gone on this rant a million times, and I'll go on it again. Everybody is hurt by marijuana not being federally legalized, okay? Every one of you is harmed by this, okay? Especially the black community. We all know the black community has been over, you know, policed for possession of marijuana for a very long time. It's true. Exactly. Even though black people don't use marijuana at a higher rate than white people do, I assure you, I smoke more <laughs> weed than anybody, okay? I love it. Um, yeah, and uh, I think federally legalizing that would be a big deal. Right now, if you are an aspiring black uh, uh, dispensary owner, uh, even in like California or Colorado, places where it's legal, you can't get a loan from a bank until marijuana is federally legalized. So you have to already have the capital to put down the investment to start that dispensary because you can't go to a bank. Very simple things like that that literally help everybody would, would be great. I mean, even prison reform would be massive. There are white people in prison. There are tons of people in prison right now that aren't just black that would absolutely benefit. What do you mean by from... prison reform? <sighs> okay, so... <laughs> I am super duper interested in prisons, especially lately. I've been obsessed with, with in just watching anything prison related. I've been binge watching 60 Days In. I've been doing research on prisons. I've been listening to YouTubers who tell stories about their time in prison. And it seems like overwhelmingly our prison system is taking in especially if we're talking low mid uh, or low medium and uh, like prison camps and stuff like that even on oh, the you federal just want level. It to be like more we're talking we're talking yeah yeah exactly okay. like it, I don't want I don't want to go on, like I mean, a yeah, general yeah. level we're so taking in sure. like petty criminals and pumping out much yeah what you, you know, were so I got it I got it make you know, make black criminals. people drug dealers again and uh, uh, what you call it make prisons nicer <laughs> got it um, so the point the point that I was trying to make there's no important difference between the dispensary joking just let's move on so the point that I was trying to make about like saying that poverty it makes people so much more prone to crime therefore we should go easier on these poor criminals it doesn't make any sense if you have a factor that makes you more prone to crime then we should treat you harsher not not less harsh like if if young men commit way more sexual assaults than women because young men of like their brains aren't fully developed they have like sexual desires and all that, then 55-year-old women, that doesn't mean we should give young men who commit sexual assaults a slap on the wrist. We have to counterbalance factors that make it more likely for you to commit crime. This is why back in the day when people were more desperate straights and they had to steal literally to survive, not this fake steal to survive where you're stealing flat screen TVs in order to feed your family, people would cut off your hand for thievery. I don't know who you responded to when you, you said stronger, like that. Certainly you need stronger no disincentives AOC, for, for criminality. Stuff like you need stronger disincentives for criminality if you're saying that something is a strong thing that makes you compelled to commit crime, not weaker. And so, just hold on one, one more, because I've, I've uh, talked a lot. Uh, but uh, in response to your thing about like uh, uh, poverty and wealth and all that stuff causing uh, crime, uh, in, in recent years we've seen the bottom 50% gain in wealth, you know, disproportionately compared to the the, the, the top 1%, like percentage-wise, but the amount of wealth that they have, they've grown considerably. I think in the last uh, in the last year it went up by like 74%, which is pretty significant. But the crime rates have been going up 
in the last few years. So how do you explain that? Economic inequality has also been going up, the, or going down though, hasn't it? Or going up, yeah, economic inequality's gone up, right? Are we, are we more unequal well, now than in 1970? Are we more unequal economically than we are in 1970? Yeah, yeah 1970. absolutely. How about yeah, 1980? I, I wasn't around back then, frankly. Uh, so <laughs> the crime rates were higher what, back yeah. then, by the way. But, what, yeah. one, thing, one thing that I will point out that I think is worth acknowledging is that yes, People commit crimes for different reasons, obviously. Like if we're talking rape, for example, rape is not a crime that people commit because they're poor. Rape is not a crime that, like, this isn't one of those crimes that generally seems to correlate with poverty because it, it seems like people do it for other reasons than, oh, I need money or, oh, I'm, I'm in a bad place, right? Um, but you could say homicide's a good example. Homicide can be done uh, out of a crime of passion. It can also be gang violence. You, you think most of the homicides are gang crimes violence. of gang yeah, passion, though? Well, I'm talking about gang violence. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Gang violence, it, so. it can be, but it can also be gang violence. We need to look at why people commit certain crimes and tailor our solutions to those uh, problems specifically. I don't think that just tackling uh, poverty will deal with crime. Will it, would we see a massive decrease in crime if there was no more poverty anymore? Almost certainly. I'd be so surprised to, to see a world where there was no economic inequality in it. Well, there'd always be. But if there was much less economic inequality in America, people were way more well off, and we didn't see a drop in crime. Well, you just flip I poverty think. and economic inequality. Can well, you tell actually, me which one you actually, actually consistently throughout this debate, both of us have said that it's not absolute uh, poverty. It's the combination of poverty and nearby wealth. That that's the, that like in other words, it's, Poverty is the downside of economic inequality. That's the line that's that both of us true. have Those taken consistently poverty, throughout the debate. Those living in poverty are more likely to commit crime when, they, when in an area that has a lot of wealth inequality. Poverty that's doesn't true. seem to go up when, like you're saying poverty crime is caused by income to, inequality. Poverty is the natural tends, state of man. And if you want to talk about wiping out poverty, wait, 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 we did that. That's why poor people in this country, wink, wink, poor people have let's, two let's cars in the garage. What? Uh, he was saying something, so I stopped talking. Poverty is the natural state of man? Is yeah. that what you just said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what do you, Wait, mean you disagree by that? with that? <laughs> yes, I disagree like, with that. Like, like, you literally I'm sorry. I don't think when there's... We, when we were hunter-gatherers, <laughs> were we like... Also trillionaires? Why were you, like, why are you appealing to that, nature? That, that might be the biggest I said natural state of man. In the history of goalposts. They had a... Uh, so, the, uh, no, poverty is not the natural state of man. Of course it is. I think when you're, when you're born, you don't have wealth, right? Like, you don't have you anything. Kidding? You have to actually do things in order to, you know, acquire wealth. Oh, hold on, wait, why, why are you pointing to, like, we don't, we don't have to get into this. Naturally speaking, humans are inclined to grab one and take her back to the grub cave. Why are you making, like, a naturalism argument? or like a No, no, I said poverty is the natural state of man, which is true. And then he was like, are you kidding? How is that possible? I mean, it's like hunter-gatherers for billionaires. If you want to say, you know, that babies are inherently impoverished. It's not, uh, it's not about babies. It's like humanity throughout poverty. What you just said, when you're born, history. you're in poverty, right? That's what you just said? I mean, when you're born, like, you don't actually, like, you don't own anything, right? Yeah, but that doesn't, I think that... Back the, in the day, we didn't have, like, it, 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 it takes human action. You have to do things to build infrastructure and society. Like, yes, yes, given that you have infrastructure, and of course, you know, of course, when you're born... Uh, you know, and for a long time thereafter, you know, you don't have a direct position in the economic structure. You have a mediated one through the parents. But they have a, but the more, but, you know, the more important point is given that we have that infrastructure, how wealth is distributed has nothing to do with nature. That's about how societies are set up. Typically when we're considering how people are going to behave in society, we want to account for the current level of, of you know, quality of life that we currently have in our society, right? 
So, so he, he said, said he said poverty is the natural outcome of income inequality. Who said that? You, you, you did. One of you said something. No, like no, that. neither of us said anything right. close to that. What you said? About, you were saying I said poverty. No, I said. No, I said. No crime. I said. No, no, no. The, the claim that you keep getting confused about is that it's not absolute poverty that, uh, that drives crime. It's the combination of poverty with nearby wealth that seems to be what drives crime. So if we can get, if we can get back to that 100 million uh, study that you were referencing, can you go into a little more detail about that? Because you talked about the, the night and the day and how that uh, explains things. <clears throat> Basically, there was a it was a giant study done on 100 million uh, traffic stops that occurred. Uh, here in the U.S., and basically they found that police were, uh, I, can, I can list all the things they ended up finding in the study. They ended up finding that um, despite black people getting stopped more often, and for obviously in the same case for the uh, previous study I mentioned, the bar being lower, uh, for pulling over and stopping a black driver, they still found that white people typically were the ones that, um, that were actually breaking law more um, for every stop if you count it per stop. And um, just overall, it, obviously, there was the uh, stops of black drivers decreased at night when it's harder to differentiate the race of the person who's driving. And it seems to solely be based on, is this person breaking traffic laws, or does this person seem to have some amount of yeah, the, 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 the racial gap in, in, uh, in people being pulled over decreased. So, 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 so in, this, in this daytime, nighttime thing, that's 100 million stops that were, that were uh, measured there? Not during the day and the night, but after nightfall. It seems like cops pulled over less black people. Not just as a friendly amendment, because I think this is what you mean, and the difference matters, right? What you're saying is, you know, the, the, the absolute numbers aren't the point. What you're saying is that the racial disparity I'm, I'm in stops unaware. narrowed after, after dark. I'm a, unaware of the exact methodology of that study. I don't know if they looked at 50,000. Do you know how the veil of darkness test is done or performed? The veil of darkness, from my understanding, it's simply, you, it's just dark out. You can't really see their face. No. What are the specifications? No. So, so the veil of darkness test, the way it is, by the way, the, 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 data, set, the data set was originally like 255 million or so. They reduced it down because some of the data sets don't have like race or there's some inconsistencies there. They reduced it down to about 95 million. When they apply the veil of darkness test, which is to say like, Okay, we're trying to take similar periods of the day, but different, like the difference is, you know how like summertime versus wintertime, like it might be light out versus dark out, so they try to account for time of day by doing that, so you have summertime and I guess wintertime, and that's about 100,000 stops that they did. And the difference that they found there as far as the, uh, the difference between, I guess, blacks and whites being stopped. Well, actually, I'm sorry, the difference between, yeah, blacks being stopped in the daytime versus the nighttime. Do you know what the percentage difference was there? If I remember correctly, it was like somewhere between 8 to 12. It's been a while since I read yeah, it's this. Like, it's like 8% or something like that. That's so still, it's, it's that's fairly significant. Yeah. Well, hold on, but you're assuming like everything else is totally equal. The veil of darkness test doesn't make absolutely everything equal. So for example, in the daytime, there's a lot more things you can identify that you might not be able to identify in the nighttime, other than race, right? So like you might uh, have a vehicle description that you can't see as well in the nighttime. Uh, even, you know, the, the, season, the seasonality matters. For example, we know there's more uh, violent crime and homicides that are committed during the summertime, but in the, win yeah, but in, in the wintertime, like, listen, black people don't like the cold. 
Everybody knows this. Black people will tell you this. Black people don't like the the cold. And uh, it, it doesn't take all that into account. Could that make up for the 8% difference? Maybe. So I don't know. The, wait, 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 the entire bill. I don't understand of... that at all. So, so, so take, me, take me through the chain of reasoning going from okay. black people don't like the cold to this is an alternative explanation okay. of the sure. difference. So the, the entire veil of darkness ran from 7 p.m. to 7.15. And oh. what they used was daylight savings. Oh. And they did this to control for like people coming home from work and all that, which is smart, right? Because it changes to the nighttime at different times. And it's, like, it started around 7. I think the furthest they went was maybe 7.45. And so first of all, they found that like, the that this on its own was not enough to like have significant differences between the race, if you actually read the abstract of the study. But secondly, it assumes that all the variables in the summer are the same as all the variables in the winter. So when he said black people don't like the code, the cold, which is a quote from my last debate on this, what he was saying is that like you're out doing different things in the summer. There's differences in behavior and differences in cultural behavior depending on the weather. Like can also happen among other factors. Like if you're pulling over people for expired registration, you might be able to see that better in the daytime than in the nighttime. In the veil of darkness, all they're looking at is race and in these 100,000 stops, the time of day. There's also like other studies that have tried to factor in lighting with different results that could also play into it, among many other factors that could lead to this difference of, what is it, like 8%? It was eight to twelve. It was. It's somewhere from eight to twelve. It's been a few days since I read it, but I remember those being the numbers roughly. Um, I do want to point out though that uh, I think that a better uh, argument probably would have been that. Well, I mean, daylight sometimes. You know, it may be past eight p.m., but it's still light out, so the cop probably would have been able to tell the race. That would have been a better. That would have been an untrue argument because the whole reason they use that time is to account for daylight saving times. They're comparing the summertime stops, which would be in the day, to the wintertime stops. And they're saying that means that the same people are on the did road they, because it's the same time of day, summer and winter. I don't remember clarifying that in the study, did that's, they? That's yeah, the literally, seven, that's the veil of darkness. It was from 7 p.m. to 7.15. Oh, and it's in military about, time, I know about that, but I didn't, know, I didn't know if they did it like during different yeah, seasons. Yeah, they say it's like, about the clock springing forward. Like They don't have to say it's about the seasons for you to know that the clock okay, springs forward in the winter. I'll take your word on that one, but that's not, I, I don't remember reading that. You don't have to take my word on it. You just have to know what the existence of daylight savings time is. Does that? I, I am curious, though. How much of a difference does that make? Because you did, because as you said, um, it, it still seems like there's an eight to twelve percent difference. You know, when the veil of darkness is there, when it seems like there's less likely uh, of a chance for the cop to be able to tell the race of the person who's driving. You said that could be explained by like maybe there's stuff the cop can't notice when it's dark out, like on the car or something. Maybe the, the make and model, you know, a description, anything like that for someone they're looking for. But that same study doesn't it also account for who was actually like given a ticket or let go so, or who actually did something like wouldn't that be accounted for so there's there's different aspects of it because what what ended up happening was they analyzed a bunch of different traffic stops in a bunch of different ways mm -hmm. what you're doing is combining separate analyses and and as if they weren't separate in the study so they do have separate data on when they pull people over and that includes more of the stops not just the veil of darkness and that's all about how often they request searches and, and all that. That's separate from the veil of darkness. The veil of darkness was trying to see if the initial reason for the stop was the pullover. So whatever happens after the stop is not relevant to that portion because they're trying to identify racial discrimination. I will say the 100 million uh, study that, that we're talking about, the 100 million stop study, doesn't really linger on the veil of darkness aspect that long. 
when you read through it. It's not a very uh, particularly important part of it. I think that if you are able to prove that at a significant rate, yes, cops are pulling black people over significantly more often at night, and that seems to be what the data would suggest on a surface level, to be fair, so it's understandable why that's out there and why people are always talking about it. Does that not still indicate to you that there's maybe a problem there? It's a possibility, but like I said, there could be other factors, and this the, the, the data acknowledges this. Seems like and I didn't, and you guys brought you guys brought up the veil of darkness and the hundred million uh, studies, so you could say that's not a relevant portion of it. I said you guys, just like you too. Well, no, he was talking about the daytime versus nighttime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the veil of darkness. Oh, yeah. yeah, that which is called the veil of darkness, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is why we're discussing it. And also, if we're going to pretend like oh, eight percent is super significant, we can use other numbers to show like oh, if you want to show that white people are actually more. Uh, you know, disproportionately uh, killed by police or something like that, you know, based on their behavior, then, you know, you could pull up the numbers of, uh, you know, okay, what percentage of, uh, of police killings or shootings that then lead to death, uh, you know, police killing people, like what percentage of that is white people versus black people compared to the people that actually kill police officers? Because it's actually very different. Like, white people are killed much higher than their proportion of killing police officers versus black people, for example. And it's much higher than 8%, the difference. Sure. How does that change anything, though? How does, how does that, this whole thing is about systemic racism. If black people have a higher chance of committing violence or killing a cop, yeah. How does that change the broader trend of police over-policing black neighborhoods? Is that because the cops are afraid that the black people are going to kill them? So we're not talking about over-policing black neighborhoods in this example. You know, is it not a big conversation in this country that cops are killing black people disproportionately? Well, how, how do people come into contact with the police? Well, and is, it not, is it not a discussion that black people, like, is it not a concern? Is it not a concern of yours that black people are being disproportionately killed by police? Yeah. Okay, so... I don't know what you're not getting here. I don't think that what you brought up is an argument against the overall point of the police or the, I should say, the system of incarceration and policing in our so country. So are you saying, saying there is systemic racism in policing against white people because this disparity exists? So, so one problem with using um, black people killing cops at higher rates than white people to say that actually, given that, the, uh, the disparities in who's killed by cops are reasonable, if anything, that, you know, that, white, that like, white people are being killed by cops you know, more than their rate of you know, killing black people, so it's all reasonable, is that actually, if you look specifically at un uh, killings of unarmed people, the racial, uh, the racial disparity is actually bigger for unarmed people being shot by the cops than for everybody being shot by the cops in general. But and not, presumably, percentage-wise, not compared to the proportion at which they kill police officers. And it also depends so on... Not compared to the proportion at which unarmed black people kill police officers. I'm pretty sure, no, I'm pretty sure 100 percent of people who kill police officers well, no, 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 are, are, are armed. So if we look, if it's the case that the disparity in people being killed by cops based on race is actually wider which it is by a lot uh, for unarmed people being killed by the cops. But it's not. That it doesn't. That not, it does. That it doesn't. It doesn't. But you're, you're, you're but, 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 the, but killing police officers well, is not relevant if we're talking about unarmed people. No, 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 hold on, hold on. First of all, that's not true. Number one. Number two. If you're talking about the disparities of unarmed black people versus unarmed white people, of course the percentages are going to be outrageous because we're talking like eight people a year. So obviously that's going to be true. Number two, unarmed means. 
in a car driving at an officer because there's a legitimate purpose for you to have a car. Unarmed means Michael Brown actively trying to arm himself with Darren Wilson's gun when he stuck his hand and got so close, according to the Department of Justice report, to the gun that he was burned by the muzzle flash when Wilson fired upon him. Unarmed means charging at an officer for a gun. Those are all counted in those statistics. So the idea that you don't pose a threat because you're unarmed is ridiculous. What, 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 do you say, what do you say that you're significantly less likely to pose a threat if you're unarmed? Not if you're actively trying to arm yourself. Yeah, but that's like you're switching the question. The, yeah, the question is, in general. Yeah, in general, but the people who typically get shot are not the ones that are just unarmed walking down do you, the street. Do you, do you think that unarmed people who were shot by cops were less likely to pose a danger to the cops than unarmed people? It doesn't matter. Is it justified or not? Were, it is justified. Who are, what, what is justified? All if so someone's reaching for your gun, gun they are currently unarmed, unarmed but they, they will be armed, armed if you let them grab your gun. That's not at all the question. The question was... That's an unarmed... That's a very no, famous that's unarmed case. Unarmed yeah. uh, people getting shot. Yes, and I'm not saying that there are no examples like that. What I asked was, do you think that unarmed people shot by cops are less likely to pose dangers to those cops than armed people who are shot by sure, cops? It depends. Oh, okay, but if you if you accept that, then you can't say black people shooting white, you know, shooting cops at a higher rate than uh, than white people is sufficient to account. For Why not? First of all, they don't just kill them. They don't just kill them with because, guns. Because, 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 because you acknowledge that the difference is greater it among, it among people who are less likely it depends to watch uh, threatening cops than uh, than people uh, than people who are. It, de so it, de it, de that that it depends on it depends on what. No, it doesn't. Because look, just because you're less likely doesn't mean it's it doesn't happen. Sure, but that's but the example that I'm thinking is examples where they did kill them. They, they could, could have been, been unarmed in what like yeah, in, the, in the beginning. Yeah, they, they could have been unarmed at the beginning, and then they got armed, and then they killed them. Also, it's, it's a, also a guy, a guy with a, a guy with a gun in his holster that's complying with an officer is less dangerous than a guy charging an officer and going for his gun. Okay, even if we arbitrarily categorize him as unarmed. Okay. But the question. Sure. I, I, I'll say one last thing. Um, I, I think I'm missing a pretty simple point, but okay. I, I, I feel I think like you are. I feel like what I have to say. I feel like what I have to say will actually bridge a gap between um, both sides here. So I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate, but I am still on the side of Ben Burgess, and I'll explain why in a moment. Obviously, this became really relevant during the Kyle Rittenhouse drama. If you are armed, if you are holding a firearm in your hand, and somebody who is unarmed is trying to grab that firearm from you, that is more or less, as far as you are aware or you are concerned, an act of deadly force being done upon you. Okay? There is no good reason why someone should be trying to disarm you. Okay, that's not a good look if you're in a position like that. Is However, that advocate, like you actually disagree with that, or you're... well, I mean, I'm explaining he, he, he the position of somebody to make a point. Okay. I'm, I'm but you do agree why with a cop but may you do agree with this shoot. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. explaining why now. Okay. So, however. While I do think that's a reasonable response to have for the average person, and our cops are human beings, I do think that we sort of agree that we should probably hold our police to a little bit of a higher standard than your average human being who's scared of their life. Now, obviously, cops aren't robo-cop. They're, they're human. They have emotions and everything, too. But I, I do think that um, uh, uh, what Bryn Burgess is saying here, that uh, you're probably going, should feel a bit less threatened by somebody if they are unarmed. Like, for example, I know this is a very in individual anecdote, but it's pretty funny, and it just happened, and I kind of just want to laugh about it. There was a video that came out recently of some cops approaching the front of a store, and there was a completely unarmed guy just walking out of it, and the cops tried to let the police dog loose in this guy to attack him. 
and the dog's just like, oh, he's not a threat, and just runs off towards another person to like, and they're like, no, 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 come back, try to get him. And the cops are trying to get the dog to attack this dude, and the dude's like, what's going on? What, what are you doing? Um, I don't know. It just it seems like sometimes our police get a little bit too, um, a little bit too jumpy. You know, maybe that's just something that we could we could solve with better well, training. We're also well, in America, where everyone's like armed. So there's, yeah, there is more it's, of a it's understandable. Than, uh, that's what. Well, that's why I'm playing devil's advocate what's, too. What's the higher standard for a cop in the same situation as Kyle Rittenhouse? Somebody's grabbing for your gun, and they're getting so close that they're about to grab it. Generally, we'd accept that at a protest like that, the police should probably be in a line, and they should have uh, some level of cooperation and some level of backup plan that doesn't involve firing shots into the crowd. Okay, so if they're going to grab your gun, and Rittenhouse didn't fire shots into the crowd. I mean, if we're talking crowd. about cops and, a, and like a police I said, line what's with the a protest, like a proper police engagement with a protest, then... You're just chasing the scenario. If a guy... If there was a cop you said we, Kyle Rittenhouse, like... What, what would be, be the higher standard that he would have? The higher standard you would ha hold police to would be there'd be a line of police. Like they no, but I'm saying, like, let's say there was one that was and isolated say, okay, from the crowd. Let's say we've got a cop then, and somebody reaches up and tries to grab the gun. In that scenario, then it would probably be completely fine to fire upon that person. Because you're an that would be an unarmed person. person, by the way. Yeah, you've been unarmed. He's actively trying to arm himself, but he's not. Nobody said that there are no circumstances under which it's ever justifiable to shoot an unarmed person. The point was that a lot of people if, you're, it, if you are, well, Some nobody do. here said it. The, uh, the point was that as you agreed, unarmed people generally, even unarmed people shot by cops are more likely to be unjustified shootings, are more likely to be people who weren't a threat to that cop at the time they were shot. And if the racial disparity there is greater, I don't think the idea that black people statistically being a greater threat to cops than white people can explain the gray racial disparity. I, I agree that of, okay, I agree that of like the eight unarmed black people that are shot by the police a year, and the two of them that are actually unarmed, that's, that's like a 25% chance that those will be unjustified. We've got to jump into this. I do want to mention, folks, do you want to come up? If you have a question, on this right side of the aisle, if you line up, and then one thing I want to try, just to max our audio, it was, they could still hear you It has a tendency to kind of like fall over, I guess. Use your like pennies a little bit. You mean forward or, or like the end of the table over now or over now? Yeah. That's right, yes. Do you want us all four of us to do that? Yeah, let's all four do it. Okay. Um, so, so for, for Ben, ben but I'd like to have everybody's input, or if you want to give it, I'm sorry. Uh, for Ben, but for for all of you, I'd love to hear your input. So I was thinking uh, about the wealth inequality or poverty causing crime, and it made me think, uh, do you think that it could be a simply a level of happiness or unhappiness or depression with poverty being a big factor uh, that could lead you to a path of doing something you might not otherwise do, something illegal, you get yourself in trouble. Uh, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of pathways between between poverty uh, and remember we're talking specifically about you know poverty. Okay, you want me to put it back the way it was? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, okay. No problem. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there are a lot of I think there are a lot of causal paths that can lead for the economic conditions uh, to uh, to higher uh, to higher crime rates. Uh, and, and I certainly think that the kind of thing that you're talking about, you know, can, uh, can be one of them. I think that, you know, I think that just, you know, just kind of giving up on, um, on success, you know, through, you know, through legal, uh, through legal means and, you know, and, and thinking that, you know, thinking that your best shot at sort of changing your class position, which is not the same as stealing a loaf of bread to stay alive, whatever, but like that your best shot of overall upward mobility through society is through, uh, is through something like you know dealing drugs. Is through you know is through involvement in gangs, etc. Uh, I think that can be that can definitely be uh, be one path from uh, from from one to the other. I think the kind of depression things like that you're talking about. I think that can absolutely be a factor in it. Uh, but in general, this this these two things do you know do seem to go together. Not a hundred percent of all the time. You can have confounding factors, but they do seem to go together. And it does seem pretty straightforward why you'd start out with a higher poverty rate among black people than white people, and it seems really unstraightforward why you'd start out with like a coincidentally higher, uh, higher crime rate, especially since I never quite got this answered earlier, but I think it was acknowledged all around that at times when you know, black, uh, black marriage rates and white marriage rates were much less different than they are now, you still had a disparity in crime because you still had a disparity in poverty. Uh, I, I would like more input, but I, I was just thinking, thinking I guess what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is what is there in between uh, I'm impoverished and then I went and committed a crime? What is it? It's, it's not, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to go commit this crime because I'm, I'm poor, but I'm poor and then this causes me to feel or act this way and then I go commit a crime. I'm asking honestly, like I don't, I don't know the answer. I'd love to hear your input. Um, Thanks. I, for that or individual, the individual anecdotes because that's more or less what you're asking for is like what would apply to a lot of people and I know that in a lot of cases like uh, if we're talking about uh, crime among black young men in a lot of communities then it would a lot of it could literally just be attributed to peer pressure for example and fear uh, maybe even uh, feeling like you're isolated and there's no point anymore if you're like a young black man from a really shitty neighborhood with a really shitty upbringing it is not very hard to get from that position to What's even the fucking point? Why should I even try anymore? And obviously that's not the type of behavior and the type of thinking we should be applauding or the type of thinking that we should be saying is good, but it's an understandable human reaction to a certain situation. Yeah, I mean, when you have no expectations for somebody, it's understandable. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, look at, I mean, it, it's, it, crime is glorified in, you know, hip hop culture, for example. I mean, you have songs from YG, like we talk about Asian hate, right? Uh, a lot of this is perpetrated by, you know, young black males, uh, and they specifically target Asians. And, you know, you have a, a song by YG called Meet the Flockas, and what's the first uh, line of that song? It says, uh, first, find a house and scope it out, find a Chinese neighborhood because they don't believe in bank accounts. Like, they glorify this. It's literally an instruction manual on how to, you know, rob this particular community. And it's something that a lot of these young people listen to and they, they think it's cool and that's, that's a big factor too. Yeah, there's, there's a number of pressures that, that can lead people to commit crime. Uh, I think income inequality is convenient for their, like, political agenda to be their cause. 
But we saw crime go down like in the Great Recession when income inequality went up and everybody who thought poverty was the cause or, or income inequality was surprised by the data, but crime actually fell during the Great Recession. Uh, we've seen periods of increased poverty where we've seen crime drop. We've seen periods of increased wealth where we've seen crime go up. We've seen income inequality grow long term over time and we're nowhere near, we're at like the peak income inequality that we've been at throughout our history, but we're nowhere near peak crime in this country. The 80s and 90s were significantly worse. Some places are having 80s and 90s levels due to the fact that there's a pullback of the police. We're de-emphasizing law enforcement. We're catering to the criminals. We're doing all these different things that pull, we're pulling back on a lot of strategies that have worked because we haven't lived in like crime-ridden America that people in the 80s and 90s have gone and lived in for a while, so we're getting weak on it. That's what all this pushback on Joe Biden about the crime bill is. The crime bill, there's a reason the Democratic Party was pushing it, because crime was way worse in this country. We've like lost the memory for that. Now we're getting weak on crime, and we're seeing the crime come back. Was the crime bill not like very popular though? It was extremely popular, yeah, that's like, what I'm saying. It was, it was awesome, awesome. it was good. Everybody it was loved cool. it. But, but that's like saying like, I mean, everybody supported it though. I, mean, I know, that's what we're saying. No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying there, everybody supported it, but they attacked, now because they attacked Biden now for it. Because crime went down for a while, people forgot about how bad crime was and what, what we need to do to address it, and you know, that's why I'm saying, all crime I'm saying the attack on Joe Biden is unjustified Now all these tough on crime policies are coming back, so. I don't think you could blame uh, upticks in crime in the last couple of years on the you know pullback of you know pullback of policing or anything like that. No, I, it's I, the I Ferguson. I don't. I don't. Okay. Right. You you removed. I, I, I don't think most of these. Uh, I don't think most of the things that people are pointing to when they talk about that were implemented in, in any kind of way. No, no, no. Go go look in New York City where I live. Uh, go look at um, when they removed the anti-crime unit, the undercover unit of NYPD officers specifically designed to go after shootings. Go look at shootings from the next day after they announced the disassembly of that, of that unit. They've risen to 1990s levels in New York City. You could draw a direct line from certain policies that worked, that were gotten rid of uh, due to this defund the police movement. Yeah, okay. to, to be out, fair. Out, there, there was already an uptick in violent crime in the summer of 2020 when you had yeah, a, less than a dozen uh, law enforcement agencies out of 180,000 in the country had had their budgets cut. Yeah, it's called the Ferguson even, effect. It hadn't even gone into effect. It's this called the Ferguson, Ferguson okay, effect. Yeah. Well, they pulled that unit off right away. Do you know away. what the Ferguson effect is? Uh, that cops are going to be, you know, the cops are going to be less likely to, you know, to use, to use force or they're less likely to pull people over because they're afraid of being accused of these things. That's what you're yeah, talking that's, about, that's right? That's definitely yeah. the big part. Yeah. Of it, yeah. I, okay. I'm, I'm also, I'm also skeptical about, uh, you know, about how widespread that is. I mean, it's been uh, shown in data. So. Uh, well, okay, I think that's I think that's severely in dispute, but all right. <laughs> no, no, no really. I mean it is. I mean, you I know, mean, it happens every time these types of uh, you know racial incidents happen. You see an uptick in crime afterwards. I mean, it's it's very there's a pattern to this. But yeah. To be fair, if I wanted to commit a certain type of crime and then they publicly announced that a particular division was about to get shut exactly. down that, that goes after that crime the next day, I would the next day go do that thing if that was something that I was planning to do. So I don't know if the, yeah, I mean, but at the, the same unit time, designed to deter illegal carrying of guns is disbanded and you see increases in shootings by people carrying illegal guns within the literally, like from the same month to month, 
in the first half of the month if they just disband it on the 15th. Shootings are normal, and then after they disband it, shootings go crazy. Then yeah, they, that's that's a that's a strong correlation, as the data nerds would say. I do agree that there is a problem with police funding, though. Uh, like, for example, I, I know that a lot of conservatives have complained about this, but for my understanding of the reason for it is uh, actually something they'd agree with. Um, I believe San Francisco uh, stopped, like, enforcing petty, like, petty theft. Uh, uh, like, they stopped acting on, like, calls for petty theft. Or yeah, because the DA especially won't even prosecute well, it because well, he's a communist. Mostly because, well, no, it's because it takes too much resources. To no, because he's literally said he will not charge, like, he doesn't believe in charging these things. Yeah. He's the, crazy. The reason why the police department specifically is no longer doing it is because it is just too much resources. The police department doesn't have the resources. Well, they don't, they don't even have to. They're, they're short 400 officers. They're short 400 officers, and the mayor of San Francisco cut $120 million out of the budget. Now, now she's going to refund the police because that was a disaster. But, yeah. Very communist. <clears throat> he is a communist, by the way. I, His parents were, uh, like, um, thank you guys, you all were very strong tonight. This is for uh, Nuance, Bro, and Sean. Um, many believe that much of the racial disparities occur not on the streets, but in the criminal justice system, where minorities are, when conditions are controlled, uh, sentenced much harsher than whites. Do, do you believe that there's any merit to these beliefs? So there's a study, um, I know there's a, one of a, a federal, like doing the, the federal prisons and things like that, where they showed the disparity was something, when they, when they tried to control everything, it was about 9%, which, you know, that, that's a disparity, that's pretty bad. Um, you know, I think there are other factors that, that play into that, um, you know, that you can't always control for. But, you know, if you really want to talk about this, like, here's the thing, we always have uh, rallies and protests and discussions on this issue of, you know, racism in the criminal justice system. Like, what, what about sexism in the criminal justice system? The difference is 63% when you control for all those factors, uh, you know, in the federal system. Like, the same authors of those studies, they looked at, uh, you know, sex and the differences there, and it's 63%. Why do we not have riots in the streets, protests, uh, you know, just panels discussing this all the time? We don't because, you know, people... They don't actually care. But, I'd like yeah, to mention I did bring up that men are over-incarcerated earlier. I'd like to bring that yeah, up. Yeah, but as compared to women, we need to throw women behind bars. Yeah. More, more women in prison. Yeah, I, I know. But um, what I'm away too long. What I would also, um, what I would say is the disparities are in the streets, and this is no matter how you measure it. A lot of people like to talk about arresting bias, but we don't really measure crime in arrests. We measure it in reports. Reports are when people, and a lot of times if it's black people, the victims are black, call in and report what happened to them. Now there's also a such thing called reporting bias. So when, in order to get around reporting bias, we have a thing called the National Crime Victimization Survey, where we send it out every year to about 174,000 households. And we ask people for all crimes except for murder, if they've been victimized for crimes. And murder should be obvious because murder people don't fill out surveys. Yeah. So when they identify their perpetrators in these national crime victimization surveys, which by the way, this is how we get data on sexual assault, which is one of the most underreported crimes. And when you see in the FBI data sets, it will say that it's the UCR supplemented with the NCVS. It, it, they, when they identify their perpetrators, these victims on their own, they identify disproportionately black perpetrators. So it's every single spot in our criminal justice system and our data collection, we see these disparities. So we shouldn't be surprised to see these disparities in our prisons at the end point. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know, y'all. Uh, I was curious. Uh, 
So um, recently I was seeing a compilation of data put together from LexisNexis looking at newspaper headlines uh, um, just I think throughout the last 40 years and it was showing how in 2011 there is a parabolic uh, trend for terms related to uh, racism, racial inequality and uh, that coincides with the Occupy Wall Street movement and so my question is do you think the prevalence and the intensity in which uh, conversations nowadays in regards to racial disparity are organic in nature and um, what can we do to ensure that they are organic and we have these conversations for the right reasons instead of you know being poked and prodded to have these reasons to become uh, a little more combative towards each other. Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, the, the attitude, you know, the, the, you used to hear this all the time where they would talk about, well, you know, black crime is actually disproportionately highlighted in the media. You know, people would actually get angry at the show Cops, for example, for showing like too many, like I think Michael Moore in one of his movies went up to them and he's like, why do you show so many black people? Why don't you show like white collar crime? And, you know, if you actually look, Ben Shapiro had a book. Uh, I forget exactly what, do you remember? Something, something with the media. Something like Hollywood or whatever. But he went and interviewed these guys and they actually admitted, oh, we actually try to show less of the black crime because like, you know, they, they're, you know, they're all Democrats and stuff. They, 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 like they don't want to, they don't want to show as much black crime because it looks bad because it would just be like way more, uh, you know, instances. And, you know, you're, you're seeing this in, you know, going back to the Asian hate example. Uh, they're not putting the race of the suspects a lot of times in these articles because they're worried about uh, creating the, they don't want the public to see how disproportionate it is that black people are committing these crimes against Asians. Uh, even in San Francisco, um, you know, they used to publish the mugshots of people that they arrested all the time. They used to do this for the, the BART system as well, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. They don't do that anymore in the last three years or so. They stopped doing it for this very reason. And, um, you know, the, and then the problem is they, they have these studies that are put out, uh, you know, one that was done on the, the Asian hate, and they were like, oh, actually, what, you know, based on news reports of when, when they listed the race of the suspect, we looked, and actually black people are not committing these crimes against Asians, like, because they never mention it. Even in the, I looked at some of the articles, they have video of the suspect that's clearly a black guy, but because they didn't say black in the article, they don't count it as a guy who uh, did something. So, yeah, the, it's really unfortunate. Like, it's, it's been getting really bad in the well, last few years. To your, th that is a, that is in the way that they, like, biasly cover, like, racial issues in the media, and that is real. I mean, there's entire books written about how they won't, like, like, if, if you don't see the race of the person listed, chances are that's a black person. But his point was, in 2011, like, the, the racial racism and all this stuff, like, really started per, to proliferate. And I think, so, I didn't pronounce that word right, pro proliferate. Yeah, and I think some of that is organic because we are a nation of changing demographics. So it makes sense that we would have people talking about that. That's something that's happening. I think uh, NPR calls it like the browning of America and all that. So like, it makes sense in that regard. But it also makes sense because we are going into the second term campaign for President Obama. And the big narrative out of his first win was that he formed this intersectional coalition and this was a winning strategy. And Obama killed John McCain. He ended up killing Mitt Romney as well. Literally. So like literally killed, they replaced him with a robot, but um, another robot, better model. But um, yeah, so the media saw that as a winning strategy and the media is overwhelmingly aligned with the Democratic Party. So it makes sense that they would push this more because even in this election, they were building up toward this intersectional co uh, sectional coalition like being the thing that keeps them a permanent majority. Because remember, the after Obama, 
the Republicans were never supposed to win a presidency again. So, like, I think part of that is artificial in that, like, they're pushing what they think is a winning strategy. But part of that's natural. Changing demographics, you're going to have people talking about, like, changing demographics. Hello, I have a question for the left side of the panel here, my left. Um, you said that poverty helps increase crime, uh, but then you amended that to say wealth inequality. It's what he meant from the beginning. I misspoke. I, I meant to clarify that while, yes, those who are living in poverty tend to commit more crime, usually the driving factor for that is wealth inequality. That seems what causes those that are living in poverty to do the crime. Yeah, for, for, the, record, for the record, the first time I brought it up, I said that. The wealth inequality or the The, the wealth itself. inequality. Okay, so that my question lies there. If it truly is wealth inequality, well, to me, that makes perfect sense. If you're a poor person and you live in a poor neighborhood, you can't steal from your neighbor because they're poor too. So you, you go, go right on down, down the street to where the rich people are and you steal from them. Mm -hmm. So why is that so surprising? Why, to me, you're putting the cart before the horse because you want to, you want to push the narrative that this wealth inequality is causing so many issues within our society when in reality it's perfectly logical that there's going to be more crime towards the people who actually have things to take. So I, I don't understand the question because it seems like you're agreeing with us but presenting it as a disagreement. If you think that it's natural or logical that, uh, that poverty alongside wealth uh, would fuel crime, then how is that a disagreement with anything that we said, which is, which is, which, which is exactly that. And, and like, maybe you don't like the idea of addressing inequality for whatever reason, but you know, you're saying it's perfectly natural or logical that there would be exactly the relationship between those two things that we say there is. Well, the reason why I would bring that up is because you're saying that the cause of the crime is poverty, but if the cause of the crime is poverty, then the crime should exist within poverty itself. Well, I, it, does. I, it does, though. I mean, That's the, the, the thing. Is the, like... thing, the, thing I, the thing I said from the beginning was that the combination of poverty and nearby wealth is what fuels high crime rates. But that crime is committed against other poors, though. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's like, hey, there's a rich guy down the street. I'm gonna rob my poor neighbor. Sh sh well, I think that the, I think that there are. This is what I was saying in response to the earlier question about how there are multiple causal paths that can take you from economic inequality to crime. You know, one of them, to be sure, is the one that you just said, you know, uh, but there are many others. They have, I think I, I think I brought one of them up earlier, you know, that the, you know, despair at upward mobility, you know, through, um, you know, through legal means uh, can, uh, can lead to people, you know, people taking a shot at it through, uh, through non-legal means or being more likely to be tempted to do that. I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty obvious one. I think if you're expectations are low because you know because you're in a situation of generalized absolute poverty i think that one's less likely to come up i think there are a lot of ways you can get from you know from one to the other and yes i agree that lead to lots of crimes against uh, against other poor people in fact other poor people are the most likely you know victims uh, of uh, of crime overall but i don't think that means there's no connection between crime and economic inequality Uh, hello, thank y'all for coming out. 
Uh, my question is primarily directed towards Sean, although I think Nuance Bro probably shares enough in his ideas with him where he can also answer this. So uh, the majority of the discussion was obviously about various studies, their methodologies, and whether or not that points to some sort of racial bias. However, it seems purely based off of the opening statement that Sean gave uh, that one, intent is required to show systemic racism, and two, uh, that basically the opposite side is using the God of the Gaps argument, saying that, like, well, since there isn't any evidence to the alternative, then it must be racial bias. It seems like both sides are at an impasse where one side will show, um, like, the study with the, like, 100... Uh, the car stop cases and say, well, this, like, we account for all of these things and there's still a disparity, so it must be racial bias. And the other side will argue that, no, there is some sort of other cause that hasn't been uh, accounted for. So my question is, what would it take in a study to demonstrate to you truly that there is some sort of systemic racism or is it not possible at all? For example, if they accounted for black people uh, like being less frequently out in the winter because they don't like the cold, assuming that that's the case. I would not assume that. 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 No, no, for the sake of the argument, assuming that that's the case and assuming that they did account for it next time and showed a racial bias regardless, would y'all then agree to it? If you guys brought up another thing that it could be another ancillary cause and that was eventually accounted for, would you still agree to it? Basically, the question is, is there any point at which you could conceivably believe that it was racial bias? Yes. So one of, the, one of the studies that I brought up, and I like it as an example of a traffic study, because what it does is it looks at disparate outcomes first as the basis for further study. And that's why I cite the New Jersey Turnpike study. So if that, where they're accounting for who's on the road, who doesn't get pulled over, showed racial bias, I'd say like those New Jersey State Troopers, whoever they were looking at at the time, it's a Jersey Police Department, uh, were using race as, as a factor to pull people over, for sure. And that would be racist. Like, so yeah, as long as you, like, I'm not asking, there's like this weird like meme on the internet that I'm asking for like studies that can't possibly be done. I'm literally citing, citing a methodology from a traffic study that's like perfect, that, that works. Like go, and if you're investigating departments like the GOJ did uh, in that instance and you, and you do it this way, I think that's great. The reason I say the, the reason I use the God of the Gaps argument is because what we get is there is a disparity, therefore racism, and then that's it. And then if it's not racism today, it's historic racism in the past when there's no reason we should expect any demographics to be equal because people in countries across the world have experienced unequal outcome all the time. Uh, so I actually have like a kind of a two-part question, and it kind of depends. So I got a question for the left-hand side and a question for my right-hand side on this one. So first for the right-hand side, um, are either of you familiar with the Morihan Report from like the 1960s? The Morihan? I think that's how you pronounce it? Pronounce it? Yes. Okay, cool. So uh, for my right, the right-hand side on this one, um, how accurate do you think that proved to be? In, in history, and if it was accurate, or even if it's not, how much do you think that has a weight on what's happening today when it comes to disparities in crime? And then for my left-hand side of the, uh, the panel, uh, are were either of you familiar that 26% of Ferguson's police department's budget came from the pulling over of people for minor traffic violations? So, <laughs> for the left-hand side of that, 
How much do you think that contributes to the underfunding of police and looking for tax mechanisms? How much does that contribute to the overall, uh, not narrative, but the overall crime disparities that we're seeing? And thank you. Do you mind if I, if I say something really quick? Go ahead, yeah, yeah. I do want to say the discussion about whether or not the motivation of police or these institutions is a racist one is more or less irrelevant to the entire discussion. Obviously, we're debating about this now, but if we're like trying to figure out a solution to these problems, whether or not it's caused by racism isn't really as important as you know acknowledging that there is a problem here, clearly. I mean, we're, we're arguing over what's causing it, but there is a problem here, and it needs to be addressed. Um, I <laughs> yeah, and, so, and, and I would actually just just oh, pop, pop right. in on that and say that the uh, that look, I mean, for for my purposes, you know, uh, I would actually be much happier if out of the two out of the two things that people mean by systemic racism that I identified at the beginning, uh, you know, one of them is the combination of people being in positions of power being prejudiced, and the other being uh, the long-term economic effects and hence effects on everything else of America's apartheid history, if it were prime, you know, the more of it's the second one rather than the first one, the happiest I am because the second one is the one that's much more easily addressed by my preferred political program. It's fairly easy to correct the economic conditions by the right policies. It's extremely difficult to change the ideas in people's heads. I'll also say that the police department of Ferguson getting like a quarter of their budget from uh, tickets for, for like traffic violations is sus. <laughs> yeah, I don't like those incentives. But um, yeah, with, with respect to the Moynihan Report, I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've read the Moynihan Report, so I don't actually remember everything. And I just remember it was, uh, it was controversial because, it, like, I don't know, people called them racist for it or something, but I don't remember all the details, so I, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. Okay, so... This question is mainly towards Nuance Pro. So, um... And again, it's like more so like criticizing your name because you call yourself nuanced, bro. And yet most of your politics are right wing or you constantly have you constantly talk about things that support the right wing. You're constantly criticizing, um, you know, more liberal things like Black Lives Matter and um, Biden and all that. And so my question is really like, OK, well, why don't you criticize Trump more or why don't you support Black Lives Matter more or why don't you, you know, just, I guess, be more nuanced towards the left, right? Um, or either that, or maybe just call yourself right wing bro. Right. Sure. Uh, how many of my videos have you seen? Uh, I've seen a lot of your videos. Yeah. Like how many? Uh... Well, I mean, I can't give have you, you an exact Steven number. Have you seen my Stephen Carter video? Uh, no, I've not. Did you see my illegal immigration video? Well, can you just tell me the points of your video. <laughs> sure, I mean, for example, the illegal immigration video is a two-part video where I was uh, actually like, it was in, replying to Vince James. I don't know if you know who Vince James is, okay. but uh, you know, he was making a point about uh, illegal uh, immigrant crime statistics, and I was saying like how a lot of his points were wrong, and you know, we actually do need better data on this, but a lot of the data that is out there doesn't suggest that illegal immigrants, like Steven Crowder, for example, I, you know, this was actually, you go to one of his videos, his, you know, uh, what's it called, his uh, Change My Mind or whatever, he had a segment where he said something crazy like, I think he said like 43% of homicides were illegal immigrants or something like that. And I was like, that does not sound right to me. So I wrote a comment and he actually replied and said, well, I got it from this data set. And I'm like, well, this data is so totally garbage. Like he just only slightly criticize some right wing I people. I slightly criticize. Listen, but, dude, I just cover what I like to cover. Do I agree more with uh, right wing people? Probably, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, but, but the but, thing but, is like, 
people always try to pigeonhole you into like, oh, are you a liberal, are you conservative? It's like, dude, if I tell right-wing people like, uh, I don't really care about, uh, like, I don't think like gay marriage is a sin because I'm not a religious guy, so I don't care about that. Uh, abortion, I think, should probably be, you know, closer to like the European model of like 12 weeks or whatever, like whatever you want. Uh, that's, I mean, these are my positions and I talk about them, but, you know, I don't, do I feel comfortable putting myself in one, whatever, I don't care. I get, around, I get along with right-wing people better than, uh, you know, communists. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, that's fine. I'm just saying that like the... Well, name doesn't make sense. Well, listen, once you start a channel, it's hard to change the name. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like okay. you build gotcha. the brand. Like, what do you want me to do? People think, people think he's nuanced because everything's middle ground, but it's like he's taking positions from different places. So we argue about economics all the time because he's way more protectionist, way more, like, I would consider more left-wing economically than I am. And, like, that's an issue that we argue over. The whole thing that he undersold what he did. So he went after a bunch of these conservatives because they were rolling 55 years worth of immigrant crime data into a 10-year span, inflating the crime that illegal immigrants were, were committing. Like, he made video responses to all these people condemning them for doing that, and he's talking shit about them when they don't correct the record after he does yeah, his videos. Lose, lose yeah, and time, like, so. he lose subscribers for it, but he's done it. It was more than 55 years, by the way. It's 1955 to 2010. Yeah. They put it like a seven-year period, but yeah. Got okay. for one last question. Yeah, so I had a question. I just can't curious, curious about both sides. Uh, I just curious how, how you feel about habitual offender laws in terms of say like life without parole or near life without parole sentences for multiple fe felonies. Do you think they in general are good or do you think they go too far? I just kind of curious what both sides think as far as what they think the ideals would be for people who are repeat offenders. Yeah, I think uh, generally I think in a lot of I mean th a lot of this varies depending on who the DA is, what state we're talking about. I do think in general we are probably too lenient on crime, uh, especially you know my hometown, San Francisco, way too lenient on crime. You have people. I, I don't think there should ever be a case where someone's been. Uh, arrested legitimately for crimes over a hundred times and then they're still committing like these I mean th these are these are real cases that I've seen uh, multiple times uh, you know in Houston for example where I live people being let out on multiple felony bonds like this is insane so I do think we should be stricter on crime uh, if someone commits I don't know let's say I mean the, you have the streets you had you used to have the three strikes rule uh, in California. They don't really do it like that anymore, exactly. But uh, yeah, I, I support sort of habitual offender laws. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna say it depends. Like I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not big on like three strikes and you're out. I think anything that takes away, like judges are supposed to use judgment. It's kind of in the name. Like anything that yanks away judgment completely from judges, I'm not really in favor of. Um, obviously, like when you get to the hundreds of times. Like, they need to put you away for a significant amount of time. But anything like three strikes where, like, the third felony is nowhere near as serious as the, the first two, I, I just think is stupid and it's, like, too rigid. It's one of the reasons why I hate the bail reform in New York because it just says you won't give bail for any of these crimes. Like, it doesn't allow the judges to judge previous criminal history or even bail jumping or any of these other factors. So, yeah, like... If we have faith in our judiciary, like we shouldn't, the legislators shouldn't be commandeering them by forcing like all these like one size fits all solutions on them. Um, I guess I'll throw my bit in here. Usually it seems like the behavior people engage in if they're already incarcerated can be pretty demonstrative of the behavior they might engage in when they get out. So typically if someone's really making a ruckus while they're incarcerated, it's pretty, you know, you could probably tell they're going to be doing crime when they get out. They're going to be, you know, back in the prison system pretty quick. Um, I'm not a big fan of the idea of like completely writing someone's life off like, oh, 
If you've made too many mistakes, we're just done with you. We're just going to lock you in a cell. You're going to live behind bars, behind fences and walls for the rest of your life because you're too much of a danger to society, and you will rot and die behind these bars, and you will never see sunlight. I don't like that idea. Um, I, I, I don't know what the solution to that is. I don't know what the alternative better solution is, but it doesn't sound like that is the right one. Yeah, I, I think I do know what the alternative solution is, and I think that it starts to become tempting to support these like barbaric laws that like after X number of things, you know, you will never be free again. That starts to become tempting when you think that the only solution to criminality in your society is to increase the harshness of the criminal justice system. And I would say, you know, Moynihan report was brought up earlier, which is essentially attempt to, uh, you know, blame black poverty and crime on culture as I think plenty of white ethnic groups had higher crime rates when they had higher poverty rates and the culture didn't change that much. I don't think culture has that much to do with it. I know, you know when you bring up other countries, people always say, oh, no, 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 it's because the culture is homogenous, has nothing to do with it. They have, if you look at a comparatively much more civilized country like Norway, they have the maximum sentence in Norway is 21 years for anything. Well, actually, not quite true. For war crimes and genocide, it's 30 years. But for anything short of war crimes and genocide, maximum sentence is 21 years. You know, Anders Breivik is going to get out eventually, you know, they, uh, unless they change the laws for him, which they were talking about. And, and they have a much lower crime rate than us. And why do they have such a lower crime rate than us, despite the fact that you know, they have such less harsh sentencing laws because it's a much more equal society because poverty is not a state of nature. You know, the distribution of resources within a society is a political choice. Strong welfare states, strong unions, these things give you a more equal society so you can have both. You can, you know, it's like the little girl in the meme, you know, por que no dos, right? You know, you can have both. You can have much more liberal criminal justice system and you can also have a lower crime rate. They were very equal in the Viking days. Very violent, by the way. <laughs> Again, see, he said poverty is not a state of nature. I didn't make it up. We, we're, humans are naturally poor when we don't have anything, when we didn't build civilization. We were broke. When we are hunter-gatherers, we were broke. That's what I mean by that. All right, well, if so, that's not a sense of natural that has anything to do with nature. With, as, we were, as we were to, in nature has before. anything to do with how to structure a complex society that's fine. that already stop saying exists it's not natural, though. and how to distribute <laughs> resources it's not a state of nature, within, though. That's it. the poverty that exists in a complex society that's with lots to go around has nothing to do with state of nature. That's if you were I actually said. making a betel irrelevant point, my apologies for interpreting you as saying something that would be relevant <laughs> to the conversation. One, one last question, guys. Just a letter rep, and we'll hopefully it'll be a 51 and then we'll have everybody else there and then it'll be 8 p.m. Just, just to respond to your last yeah. point, given that so much of this is centered around demographs and how much African-Americans commit so much more crime, is it fair to use Norway as an example, when their population of African Americans is near zero, well, it depends. They have, why. So, they have Somalis in Oslo. I Did, can tell you that. It depends why you think that African Americans commit more crime, and this is a big thing that we've been arguing about today, right? Yeah. So if you think it's culture, then sure, it would be an unfair comparison. If you have, I think, a vastly more rational view and think that it's economics, then it's completely irrelevant what the racial demographics are of Norway 
everybody is going to commit less crime in a more economically equal society. All right, thank you so much, folks. We are very excited to have the main event at 8 p.m., but most of all, thanks so much to our guests. Thrilled for this panel, it's been a tremendous one. Thank you. how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.